And the rest of us, uh, we will be continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. So, uh, so John has been slowly revealing to us, uh, piece by piece, who Jesus is. The full extent of this one introduced to us uh, from the beginning as the Word. And we keep learning more and more. He is light. He is truth. And today we're going to see how Jesus interacts with uh, the concept of the temple. The temple that is in Jerusalem. All right. Now, I recognize that as we go about our daily lives, most of you do not inherently care about Jesus' relationship to the temple in Jerusalem. All right, that's understood, and it's, it's understandable. So, uh, why should you care about the temple and Jesus' relationship to it? Uh, I think Psalm 84 does it better than most enticing us to to understand the depth of joy that is found in the temple of the Lord. Let's read that. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, 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 faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He's able to just, just, the psalmist is able to just just bubble over with joy and with praise and delight by standing in the presence of the Lord in his temple. And as we live our lives looking for great joy, looking to, to experience this kind of delight, the temple is set before us as a place to enter into the presence of God and experience with great joy this God. So with that, uh, we should care. We should care for the sake of our own joy, for the sake of our delight in God, that we'd want to come into the temple and experience him. So today we're going to be looking at John's account of Jesus going into the temple and clearing it. Now, before we start, uh, as scholars look at various accounts of the Gospels, they kind of come to realize that there are actually two times where Jesus clears the temple. All right, some people think that it's the same story, just put in different places, that John puts it early in his Gospel and the synoptics put it later in theirs. The trouble with that is that not only do they change the order, they also have different events around it and leading up to it. So much so that we can't say that they're the same event. Instead, we're going to say that John, in his gospel, talks about a very early event where Jesus clears the temple. And it sets the pace for the rest of his ministry. And then three years later, an account found in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is going to go back to that temple and clear it again as a close to his ministry. All right, so kind of temple clearings and an indictment against the the temple system as it's been run kind of bookends Jesus' life and his ministry. And so today we're focused on John's account of that early clearing of the temple. And we're going to see two, two main things. Two main things are focused on in this account. First, Jesus' zeal for his father's house 
and the worship of God in that place. He is zealous for worship in the temple. And second, he is so zealous for the worship in that temple that he needs to establish a better, more ultimate temple, his own body, died and raised from the dead, that we might experience that worship in greater fullness. So zeal and a better temple. Let's look at John 2, verses 13 through 25. All right. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the revelation you've given us about Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is the temple. Lord, would you help us to appreciate that concept? Would you help us uh, to live under it? Father, would we delight in your temple? Would we go and stand in your presence in that temple with great joy? Father, would we be passionate and zealous about your worship? And Lord, would we, would we worship with heart and soul, mind and strength? Would we worship in spirit and in truth that you may be glorified and we may experience all the joy that you offer in knowing you in fullness through Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. All right. So we begin with uh, Jesus' zeal for his father's house. So verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, now, before we can start anything, we need to make sure you understand the uniqueness of the temple at this time. All right, the temple is not, it's not comparable to any, any other building in our modern period, okay? Because first, the temple is a place where God is actually present with his people. He was present with his people in a different sense than he is omnipresent and everywhere. No, he specially came and dwelt with his people in his temple. And only in this very one place, this temple in Jerusalem. All right, that is very different than anything else in our world today. Now, as look around. Look around this building. This is not a temple. This is not a sacred space. It's helpful that it's a gym because it doesn't look like a sacred space. Uh, and so we don't confuse it. We don't call this a sanctuary because there's nothing magic about this place. 
called an auditorium. It's just a place where people gather. All right, but the temple, the temple was different. The temple was a place that was holy and set apart. It was a place where you could uniquely meet with God, and so you had to go to the temple to be in his presence. All right, second, all right, and then kind of building off that, if God is present there, then that is the only place of true worship. If you want to worship God and actually be in his presence and experience all that he is and all that he offers, fullness of, of joy in his presence, it only happens at this temple in Jerusalem. That's why everyone is flocking to Jerusalem. Uh, that worship is different there. And people want to be in the, the full presence of God. Now beyond that then, all right, so presence, they want to worship. One last thing that is utterly unique to the temple, this is the only place you sacrifice. You can only make sacrifice here because God is the only one there. and That's the only place of true worship. Jesus will actually talk to the woman at the well and, and he doesn't. He doesn't say, no, you can worship anywhere. She says, you guys worship here. The Jews worship somewhere else. And he says, basically says, yeah, you should worship with the Jews, but you're wrong. Uh, right. So what are people doing? People are bringing their Passover lambs into the temple as families and they are sacrificing them together. That is the place of true sacrifice. And throughout the year, people would have to go there and offer doves and oxen and lambs for thanks offerings and for peace offerings, for sin offerings. And the only place you can do it is the temple in Jerusalem. So, verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus goes into this temple, this utterly unique temple, the place of God, and he finds animal sellers. Why? Because like we said, there's ongoing sacrifice throughout the whole year. And as people come from far and wide, it's convenient not to have to bring your animals with you. All right? You don't have to take a whole caravan of sacrificial animals. Instead, you bring some cash, Get your animals there, and you can make your sacrifices. Secondly, all right, there's money changers. Why do you need money changers there? Because you have to pay the temple tax. In order to use the temple, there's a tax that's put on all the people who enter, and it has to be in a special coin. There's a stator, which you, have to, it, you can't bring anything else, so they make sure they can change that money over to pay the temple tax. Now, that seems pretty reasonable. It's a matter of convenience. The things that are done are permissible and part of worship. And yet Jesus, he sees these things, he makes a whip of cords, drives them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. All right, the nice thing about the story is we also get a Another side of Jesus, just in his person, that he's not meek and mild-mannered all the time. He's not always gentle and gracious. You know, sometimes he's aggressive and impassioned. He's zealous. 
And I think we have a hard time picturing Jesus, like constructing his whip, driving out the animals, flipping over tables, throwing coins, but that is, that is Jesus. You have to ask ourselves, what gets Jesus, Jesus that upset? All right. In this account, Jesus is not upset about corrupt business practices. Or it's not because the people are, are gouging. The religious leaders are gouging the, the people or taking from the poor or taking too much for themselves. That's not what he's upset about. All right. Jesus doesn't go to the movie theater, jump over the, the, the counter and yell about $15 popcorn. Okay. He doesn't care. That's not the point. All right. That, yes, that, that might be robbery of some sort. That's not why he's doing it here. All right. Why is he doing it? Yeah, look at your text. It'll tell you. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. All right, you go by the text. That's what he says. That's what he says he's upset about. All right, it's not how they are selling these things. It's the fact that they are doing it at all. The very fact that they are there, it doesn't matter how, how expensive the lambs are. They shouldn't be there because this is his father's house. And there are a million houses of trade. Anywhere else in the whole world could you change your money? Anywhere else in Jerusalem could you sell sheep and oxen? The problem was, is that you know, this utterly unique place has been compromised. And they're being robbed of the, the unique blessings that are offered in the temple, in the presence of God. Now, I think we'd say there, there's two things wrong with this. Two things wrong with the fact that they have turned this into, into a market. All right, first, it shows the heart of the religious leaders. That when they, they walked around the temple and they looked around and they, say, they saw the space there and they thought, what should we do with this court? And what did they, they, they thought, you know what? Let's turn it into a market. Instead of saying this, this, this space should be used for prayer, for singing praises, for, for confession of sin, for just enjoying the reality that this is, this is God with us in this place. No, instead, they see a place of worship and they think, you know, I can probably make a buck off of this. And the people are here anyway. Why don't we be the ones to sell them the stuff and keep all the money internal? Right. They have dollar signs in their eyes as they look around the temple. We ask ourselves, all right, in that same vein, it's, a, it's, a, it's not directly parallel, but as we think about the worship of the Lord, do we enter into places of worship and we're ready to worship and yet bring our own idols into the war? Do we come and we think, oh, yeah, let's, let's worship, but what we're really looking for 
is a chance to make money. All right, some people come to church not to worship, but to make business connections. Or maybe you come to show off your, your best outfit for the week. Or maybe you come to, to show off to people that you are holy and you are righteous. Maybe you come for the, the fun of it, for the relationships. Now, all these things, they're, they're not the worst things. But there's a time to uniquely worship. To stand before God and to delight in Him. To love Him and pray to Him and to know Him. And Jesus sees that, you know, I've gotten so far from that. And what should be a place for God has become a place for idol, idolatry. Now, now that, that's assuming the worst. Let's assume the best here. At best, at best, they're doing this just because it's convenient. And after all, God tells us to do this, so we might as well do it here. What's so bad about selling some animals and exchanging some money? It's inherently evil. All right, maybe if it's not just wanton idolatry and a misuse of the temple, maybe, maybe it's just that they've gotten the focus wrong. And that the temple is not supposed to be this convenient place where you pop in and pop out, get your animals, make your sacrifice, pay your tax, and get out. Maybe they're supposed to be staying in the temple complex. It's sitting in the courts. Lingering. Worshipping. Delighting in God. Doing Psalm 84 stuff. But instead it's become this business transaction between God and man. Getting the sacrifice in. Paying your dues and then getting out. Once again, we are indicted that we also can love the sacrifice of Jesus. But it doesn't actually bring us into worship. It doesn't actually get us access to God. We are merely covering our sins and then walking out the door. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he offers us access to his Father. Great joy and delight. We delight in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus because it gives us access to the, the one that we love and it, it allows us to enter into worship unhindered and with great joy. Do we, do we enter in in that same way? Now, if we don't do it, Jesus does. And Jesus understands that that's what worship is about. That's what the temple is about. And so when the people see this, his disciples see this, they see Jesus doing it. Verse 17, what do they say? His disciples remembered what is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus loves his father. And he loves worship. And he's so zealous about the worship of God that yes, he will... He'll wreak havoc and he will destroy and he will drive out 
And he will make sure that there are not obstacles before his people that they will actually get the one true God. Not just a business transaction, not just idolatry in God's place, but they'll have a place to meet with God. Now, as we think about this, uh, why does it matter that he talks about Psalm 69? It's a quote here, uh, talking about a Psalm of David, and David is actually talking about how, how horrible his life has become. He's mourning and he is suffering And then he says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. All right, notice what he's saying. He is not saying, My zeal is just so great that it overwhelms me. My zeal consumes me. He's not saying that. What is he saying? He's saying, Because I am zealous about the Lord and his worship, I am being consumed by my enemies. People hate me because I'm zealous about worship. That is what David is saying, and that's, that's what the, the disciples see in Jesus. That Jesus so loves and is zealous about the worship of God that it is going to consume him. That he'll be persecuted for it. He will suffer for it. And notice that, you probably don't care about this, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, This one says has, it has consumed me. They actually quote a different version of the scripture and it says it will consume me. They see it as a prophecy. And they're realizing Jesus is setting himself up here to be destroyed. They will consume him because he is so zealous about worship that he'll make everyone want to kill him. That is what they see being fulfilled as Jesus does this. Now, Jesus longs for us to worship. To to enter into God's presence and, and to hear the truth from God's lips. To be released from sin and lies and death. He longs for people to come in and hear the the Spirit speaking to them that they are loved, that they are masterpieces set apart for His glory, that His people are the objects of His lavish grace poured upon them, that His people are the apple of His eye, that He would sing songs over them, Right, that is what we come to do. Not, not just like to, to experience a God that is that gracious and loving and who delights in us that richly in spite of our sin. That is why we come to worship. We come to know that God and to stand in his presence. Now, are we zealous about that kind of worship? Are we zealous about making sure that that kind of worship happens? Are we zealous enough about it that we would be willing to be consumed? And that we would sacrifice for the sake of that worship happening to upset the status quo or to to overflip tables if we see it not happening 
Right, that is Jesus. That is how passionate he is about this worship and about us experiencing it. But, all right, second point. That takes us naturally into the persecution. This is a prophecy that, that Jesus will be consumed because of his zeal. And the religious, the religious leaders are going to come to him and do, do just that. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, this is the religious leaders in the temple who are in charge of this stuff, what sign do you show us for doing these things? All right, what question do they not ask? They don't ask, why did you do this? They don't ask themselves, is, was it right or wrong what Jesus just did? Why did? What is he doing? What's the point? No, they tend not to ask that. What do they ask? They ask about credentials. They ask about whether or not he has the authority to do this because this is so crazy the only thing that would give him enough authority to do what he just did would be a miraculous sign performed at, the, at that very moment. That would prove that Jesus is, is worthy of doing this in the temple. Now, there's, a, there's some irony here. Because actually, in their persecuting him for doing this, they're fulfilling Psalm 69. So they're, they're actively making it true that Jesus did this and they're, they're consuming him for his zeal. Uh, but that's not enough. So uh, Jesus gives them uh, another sign. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. All right. Uh, this is also a confusing statement we're going to get right. So... When Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, it sounds like a threat to destroy the temple. And actually, in Matthew, it says that this is actually one of the charges that's brought against Jesus. That when they say, why is this guy so bad that we should kill him? They have false witnesses who come and say, uh, verse 60, they found none who were able to testify against them, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. All right, this is a rabbit trail. Follow the rabbit trail with me. Uh, this is in Matthew, this account. And Matthew doesn't talk about this conversation that Jesus has at the temple. John does. And so we have something that Jesus supposedly said in one gospel, and then John talks about him actually saying the thing and correcting it. All right, this is two separate witnesses corroborating each other's stories, authenticating the Gospels. Right? So these are testimonies from different people, different places, different times, and they're seeing the exact same stuff from two different perspectives. Uh, that's not the point of the sermon. Just It's nice to, nice to see that stuff, and we'll talk about the apologetic stuff, the proof of the Gospels' reality as they come up. So... All right, so if Jesus wasn't saying, I'm able or I'm going to destroy the temple, what was he saying? Uh, he's essentially saying, you, if you destroy the temple. And even more than that, he's, he's inviting them and kind of goading them, destroy the temple. You go ahead and destroy it and see what happens, and I'll raise it up. If you destroy it, I'll raise it up. That'll be a miracle enough. All right. 
So that's his condition. If you destroy it, I will rebuild it. Now, what do they say? The Jews said then, it has taken 46 years to rebuild this temple, and will you raise it up again in three days? All right, they wanted this great sign. He gives, he gives, he invites them into it. They're just not willing to destroy the temple. Uh, a couple things here. First, Jesus is hinting at the destruction of the physical temple. He's hinting at the fact that this temple needs to be destroyed. And when he goes in, he is not. That's where we always say the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing. And it's better called the clearing of the temple. It's an act of judgment against the temple. And it happens once. They don't figure it out. It happens again. And then he's going to prophesy and say, you know what, this temple is going to be destroyed. You don't get it. All the things that are supposed to happen at this temple, inviting people to worship and delight in God, it has utterly failed. This temple doesn't bring people to God. This people just entrenches them in idolatry and self-righteousness and the law. So that's part of it. But Jesus isn't going to destroy that temple without creating a new one. And that's where he is so zealous for the temple and for worship that what does he do? He, he, will, he will become the temple and he will do whatever it takes to make that temple a place of true worship, even his own death and resurrection. And he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, we have one more piece of this puzzle of who is Jesus. Jesus is the new, true temple. The temple of the Lord. All right, so now think of all the things that the, the physical temple was. All right, we're going to pull them over and say, now they're true of Jesus. Right. Jesus is the place of God's presence. That is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. We talked about Jesus being the, the tabernacle, right? The dwelling place of God is with man. That now... If you want to enter into the presence of God, you have to go through the temple. Jesus Christ, his son. And he does it in a really beautiful way. Because whereas the temple just stood there and said, you know, created this, this barrier to invite people to stand into the presence of God, all right, Jesus becomes a mobile temple who goes to people, people who are sinners and people who would be outcasts from that temple, people who are, who are lame and who are blind. He goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the, the prostitutes and the, the tax collectors. And he brings the presence of God to the people and invites them to worship. The temple becomes this this invitation, not a barrier to the worship of God. 
And we said that, what is this? The temple is a place of worship. It's a means of entering into worship of God. And Jesus becomes a new place of worship. The means of worshiping God. And so as we, as we try to enter into worship with God, how do we do it? We, we pray in Jesus' name. We pray through Jesus, entering into the temple that is Christ, and then we pray. Or how do we sing praises? We have to enter through Jesus in his name. In his name, we offer our great our joys and our rejoicing. We, we enter into worship at the, the foot of the cross. We enter before the empty tomb. We enter into worship, seeing him exalted on high, ascended and sitting at his throne. It is only through Jesus that we can worship. And just like there is only one temple, there is only one temple now, Jesus Christ. All right, you cannot get to God any other way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you are trying to get to God through any other means than Jesus Christ, you're not going to find yourself there. Just like lots of people tried to worship at other temples. And God said, like, I, I am not there. That is a place of idolatry. If it's not through Jesus, you're not worshiping the Lord. And finally, finally, Jesus Christ is the only place of true sacrifice. There is only one place, only one temple where we will be truly cleansed from our sins, where we can find an atonement, a sacrifice to, to find true forgiveness and righteousness worthy to stand before the presence of this holy God. And that is because this temple was torn down and built up in three days that he has offered himself as the sacrifice. That when he enters in and he comes in his presence, he is not destroying us, but no, he is cleansing us and forgiving us of our sins. The sacrifice is done. All of those lambs and sheep and oxen and, and pigeons, they are no more. We have no need to sacrifice our sins are forgiven once and for all. It is finished. Amen? So, our sins are paid for. We are invited into the presence of Jesus to stand before him and worship with great joy. All, right, all of this comes to us through this Jesus, the temple who has revealed to us the Father in all of his glory and grace. And as we come full circle, are you zealous about the temple? Are you zealous for right worship at the right temple in the right way?
Are you zealous about fighting against fake worship that ignores Jesus or forgets Jesus and replaces Jesus with the law or with self-righteousness or human attainability? Are you willing to overthrow the tables of that kind of worship to get back to Jesus, to make sure the temple remains the temple, that Jesus remains the heart of worship? All right, we are to fight for that tooth and nail because Jesus cares about it. To worship in his temple, to worship in his name, to not just do vague God, but to, to, to remember the one sacrifice, the one place of worship, Jesus Christ. In the same way, are we aggressively fighting against dead, heartless worship? Or worship that would misconstrue Jesus and make him into a, a grace vending machine? Or excuse sin in the temple? Or would, would seek Jesus for the wrong things? That we'd want him for worldly blessing, that we'd want him for, for the advancement of worldly success, and not to actually worship God and delight in him. Let us go to the temple. Let us know that we are forgiven. Let us know that our sins are washed clean. Let us know that in Christ, we meet a God who delights in us and who has abundant, lavish grace for us, who longs to remind us that we are sons and daughters, that we are the objects of his affection and his grace. And let us rejoice. May we say in Jesus' name, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, yet faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Let us enter into the, the temple with, with that kind of joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending the true temple. We thank you that you have invited us in, offered the, the perfect sacrifice, that you have made a way that we may stand in your presence day in and day out. That by the, by the Holy Spirit, we are united to this Christ in all places, at all times. Lord, would you make us into a temple people that are ever worshiping and delighting in Christ our Savior. And Lord, would we, would we rejoice to stand in your presence through Christ. Holy Spirit, would you be opening our eyes and, and shaping our heart that we would do that more and more every day to the glory of, of your name through Christ, in whom's name we pray.